ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In a Game of Thrones, you win or you let artificial intelligence do it for you. Yes, this week on Download the Show, the author of Game of Thrones has joined many other authors in suing the AI company ChatGPT for copyright. Speaking of AI, could AI play a role in the next job that you get? Also on the show, Elon Musk's brain chip company Neuralink are facing allegations about their experiments on primates. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. I'm back. I missed you. Uh, It's lovely to be here. Big thank you to Ray and Rad for stepping in and hosting the show and doing such an incredible job over the last couple of months. But it is lovely to be back in the Download This Show studio. And lovely to have our guests back this week. Uh, We have social media strategist extraordinaire. That's right. I've gone back to calling you an extraordinaire, Meg Coffey. Welcome back. Hello. I'm excited to be here and be with you. The pleasure is entirely mine. And from Bite side, Seamus Byrne, welcome back to Download This Show. Good to be back, of course. So, it wouldn't be Download This Show if somebody wasn't suing somebody somewhere. <laughs> uh, the creator of Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, who is a lovely short man, is suing the creator of the AI service, ChatGPT. Seamus, why? why? Why is this happening? Well, it's it's George along with a, a crew of his uh, friends from the Authors Guild uh, in, I think, New York. People like Jonathan Franson and George Saunders and a whole bunch are basically suing for the fact that they feel like they have had their novels stolen. Uh, I believe the quote is a systematic theft on a mass scale uh, to train AI and uh, use it as part of just creating all these uh, chat services. I guess being OpenAI, ChatGPT specifically, uh, is, yeah, trained on their work. So essential to this argument is this idea that at some point, somewhere along the line, Meg, that uh, people have essentially uploaded their works into ChatGPT. ChatGPT has learnt from their writing. Is there any actual proof that that has happened? Like, how do we, how do they, how have they arrived at this idea that somebody has actually uploaded their work in the first place? Because they, they know they, being the, the authors that are suing, but also the general public, knows that these open models are being trained on something, right? So they have to be, they have to learn from something. So they were fed a whole bunch of information. And it's not just copyright that these guys are worried about. It's the fact that all of this information is being uploaded and they're learning from it, which means that they're going to be able to output things that are similar to what these guys are writing. And that's what has them so concerned. You ask about what proof is there. It's that they scraped the internet and there's there's aspects of, of these people's works all over the internet, whether it is from movies or written word or or any other way that these these works have been distributed. I guess the the thing I come back to is are they likely to win? <laughs> Actually is what I really want to know because because and what the implications of that are for everyone else that's had their kind of existence scraped by an internet service. Yeah, look, I, I think there is a real struggle attached to this this case because they kind of they have to really sort of prove that their works were wholesale imported into these systems. And 
it really does seem like that the way that these things have been trained isn't about, you know, copying full, you know, novels and things like that. It has been, as Meg was saying, scraping the internet. And the last kind of count I heard is maybe they've done like four or five percent of the open internet, which is a huge amount. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't it <laughs> might sound like a small percentage, but it's an amazing amount. And if a big part of that is things like the Wikipedias of the world, then there you have summaries of essentially every major famous novel. And that's kind of one of the key things that they've said is if you ask it, it will give you a really good summary of the novel. Therefore, it must have absorbed the entire novel. And that's just not necessarily the case. There's summaries of all sorts of things all over the internet. And so it is about that fact that it could have learned in a lot of different ways. And ultimately, it is under existing copyright law, sort of that whole issue of a transformative work, you know, that in in many regards, even if you have used other people's materials in different ways, it's hard to say that because it can now summarise something that that in itself is a breach of the copyright. But it's not just the summaries. It's, it's that you can learn how to write like the author or to make jokes like the comedian because you've learned their style of delivery, their style of writing. And I think that was—that's what I found most interesting in the lawsuit, not just that it was you're creating derivative works, but it was just different, that it was the style that was different. Yeah. 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 And I think that's certainly one that it really hits me in things like some of the image space where, yeah, when you can prompt something to to essentially yeah, replicate a style of something and in that process cut that that actual person, and particularly when it's really granular and it's asking for a very specific thing, uh, that is definitely where you start to kind of wonder about, well, the existing laws might ultimately say it's actually kind of okay, but you're like, is the spirit of it really anywhere close to what we thought we'd be dealing with? They're calling it systemic theft on a massive scale. Typically speaking, when you have to prove theft, you have to prove a deficit of something. It's not just that you borrowed it or you copied it. That would be plagiarism. You have to say that if you took something, it has to not exist. And uh, I'm not sure that argument holds, Meg. Like, like if, if they've just copied it, is that necessarily theft? I think this is another case of where the legal system can't keep up with the technology. Mm. Right. You know, the definition. Yeah. If, if theft is that someone suffered a loss, then no, then then that is then that. No, it doesn't meet the legal definition. You know, you don't get you don't get mad at people for writing fan fiction. Right. For taking, you know, a Game of Thrones and writing an extension of their own. This is what I think would happen if there was an extra chapter. Right. Um, so it is this weird fine line of then. OK, so then how is it different if I'm going to go and write a chapter or write a new novel in the style of of these authors? It's I think it's. It's, is it because it's the technology and it's not the human? Is, is it because the technology could replace the human and that's where we're getting so upset with it? What do you think, Seamus? Well, I mean, nobody's going to get upset if someone steps in and uses AI to write the last novel of Game of Thrones, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd get there eventually. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out it's not just affecting authors as well. AI may also play a role in how you get your next job. So apparently in in 2022, there was a survey conducted by the Society of Human Resources Management. They sound like fun. Uh, They found (laughs) that 42% of businesses are already adopting AI in HR functions. 79% of them are considering it for use in their recruitment process. So, I mean, just talk to me about the practicalities of that, Seamus. How would AI come into 
the way in which you're you're being hired, what would they what would they be doing with your application for various different jobs? Yeah, so there's probably the two different phases that it could be useful in. Yeah, we've probably had keyword matching for a long time, and I guess this would sort of be you know, in the AI context, it would probably be able to be a little bit smarter than just you know specifically going on a keyword basis and giving a score, but but being a little bit more flexible when it comes to exactly how something was written, how an application was written, how a CV is written. But I mean, these are really quite formulaic documents. And so in that sense, uh, you know, being able to automate in some way, you know, passing a CV and passing somebody's you know, cover letter could be pretty simple when it comes to at least being able to kind of grade, uh, you know, is this thing you know, worth a human even looking at versus something that is, you know, just straight in the bin. And when you talk about high, like really high volume types of recruiting processes, you can imagine how this sort of stuff would help a lot when it comes to culling that first phase and starting to focus in. But then I've also heard that there's been some great evidence in areas like being able to use AI in a in a chat process for actually having that, again, an, an initial screening interview, perhaps, then instead of doing it with a human, you could use an AI sort of chat service to to ask that first set of questions where you just want certain kinds of responses that are going to be pretty formulaic in terms of the questions and then you know, having the answers come through and, again, scoring them in sort of some way based on what a company is looking for. So they're the kinds of ways in which I think these systems do seem like they've got some pretty good applications in HR. I mean, there's a little part of me that just thinks that it makes sense from the point of view of an employer, but if you're an employee and the first interaction you have with a potential employer is they send you to talk to an AI, I'm just like, no. (laughs) That being said, uh, there has been a bit of writing on this and uh, there is actually an article in Smart Company that was written by somebody who works at one of these AI companies. And he made the observation that um, there are all these, you know, human failings that come into being hired for jobs. For example, we know that there are unconscious biases, people with certain kinds of surnames statistically often end up not getting as many jobs job applications for certain kinds of industries. Is there an opportunity within this, Meg, where AI can actually correct potentially some of our human failings? Yeah, I definitely think that's that's where it does come in, is is in correcting some of those bias. Now, remember that these, these systems are only as good as we train them. They're only as good as the parameters that we set for them. So you have to make sure that you're, you're not setting bias when you're setting them up. But I do think in some of these, you know, these high volume settings where you are getting a lot of applications, that it can be really good. It doesn't look at it. It doesn't know the gender of the application. It can cut those things out. It doesn't look at at the last name. Um, as Shema said, it can, you know, have the 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 look at the response to the questions without looking at anything else and grade you on the response to those questions um, without the, the the knowledge of anything else. So I think I think it is really good in those systems. But again, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe when I hire people, I'm not getting. I mean, we get hundreds of applications, but this is stuff that Seek does for us already. It seems like they're probably looking at this technology, wondering how they can use it. <laughs> And you know, look, there's yeah. another great example where in you know, an Australian study that there's actually, and it's some early studies, obviously lots more to be done, but they've actually found for women, they actually do sometimes feel more confident in the idea that they might be initially rated by an AI and not by some biased 
Indeed. Yeah, that was fascinating that Australians don't trust AI, but when it comes to hiring, women will trust it more than <laughs> than they yeah. won't. There's a sliding scale of trust there that's actually really quite depressing when you think about what it says about us. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that's good, you know, because there is, you know, if there is that gender bias that, you know, we feel that it would, you know, that AI will help remove that. And if we have a better chance of getting the job, then I'm all for it. Yeah. And look, there's another specific study that actually, yeah, was done at Monash that found that uh, AI in recruitment almost doubled the number of women assessed to be among the top 10% of performers in these particular studies that they did so far. So again, it really is that idea of going, we know that AI can have a lot of biases built into it, but this is potentially one of those categories where we can overcome some of those other sort of systemic biases that currently exist. Meg, what kind of transparency would you like? Put yourself in the shoes of a potential employee, right? As you send off your application, would you like to know that uh, it was going to get first screened through AI uh, in the in the first instance? So I'm a bit like you in that if my first interaction with a company is going to be a bot, I'm going to be like, mm, really, is that what they think of me? But then again, am I? I would I would think about where am I applying? Like if I'm applying to Google, then of course my first interaction is going to be a bot, and that's what I would expect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but if I'm um, uh, you know applying to the small business down the road, then no, that's not what I want. I want to hear back from the owner or, or someone like that. Um, but these days, it be you know, 2023, almost 2024, yes, I'm going to assume that anywhere that I put my resume, it is going to be scanned by some form of AI to to scan it for something. And that and I'm perfectly fine with that. How about you, Seamus? Would you like to know in the first instance? Yeah, look, a big thing that I found recently was, you know, I haven't written a CV in a very long time and then was talking to some friends recently and discovered that that all of the ways in which that I used to think about how you would write it are totally wrong in a modern context. You do need to format and because it is about keywords and filling out all these kinds of info. So, you know, it does seem like as a system, uh, recruitment, you know, as an industry has really started to kind of formalise around the idea that they need to be able to scan for lots of, you know, details before a human ever touches it. And I mean, when I've hired people, I, I've i never gone down that ro- road and do prefer to, tr- but again, that's like an editorial thing, right? That's kind of, our background is about how do you write in a way that can connect with humans, not how do you write in a way that convinces a machine that you're correct. Well, this was going to be my other thing because I, I realise now when I when you get sent to chatbots uh, for customer service, one of the first things I ask is, are you human? <laughs> Which is so dystopian. As I type it in, I'm like, where, how did we get here? But I do wonder if there's ways, you know, are there going to be ways we can game it? 10,000%. There already are. Um, yeah. I mean, there already are blog posts about how to game the, the AI systems for recruitment and for applications and for, you know, housing applications and all of that kind of stuff. You know, if there's ever, where there is technology, there is a hack and there is a, a guru to sell you that hack. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell. Our guest this week, Meg Coffey, social media strategist and from Byteside, Seamus Byrne. And Seamus, Google's been accused of rigging the internet search market, which now that I say out loud, seems kind of funny given that they kind of are the internet search market, or at least has been for the last 20 years. 
Yes. Look, this is a fascinating one because there's no question Google dominates online search, right? 90% of global internet search is you know, the, the typical number that gets thrown around about how much they control it. But this is going to be one of the big fights as the uh, yeah, Department of Justice in America takes them you know, over antitrust and monopoly sort of activities. Is this a preferred bias because they're just so good? Or is it the fact that they have you know, muscled their way into every corner of the internet to ensure that nobody else ever even gets a chance? Why specifically has this come up now? Has something changed? Yeah. So, look, I was looking into this one and it is it really, are they just really good at what they do? Or have they done something wrong? I think that they, well, it could be a little bit of both, but I think they're actually just really good at what they do. Look, there's a, there's, there's a few different things that are happening. There's a lot of big tech cases before the courts at, at the moment. Um, and, and there has, you know, there has, there's a lot to do with advertising, right? And where the revenue of advertising is going. And I think if we look at the heart of it, that's, what this is, it's not necessarily about the search engine. It's about the advertising revenue and and the dominance of the advertising and Google ads and I mean, because that's obviously where all their money comes from. And that's what the U.S. antitrust and businesses have have problems with. Um, the search, their search is good. Their search is unbeatable. You can't fault them for that. I don't think. So what have they? What has the Department of Justice got then, Seamus? Why why are they choosing to do it now? Given there is this sort of generalised sense, yes, Google are very good at this. Is there are there practices, business practices that are that are being put on trial here specifically? Yeah, so I mean, one of the big things is, of course, these things move slowly, and so this lawsuit was filed in 2020. The wheels of justice turn very, very slowly sometimes, especially when big companies are involved. But it's really yeah, focusing on the fact that they pay billions of dollars to Apple to ensure that they are the default search engine in Safari, and to Mozilla, you know, they're a nonprofit foundation that runs the Firefox browser. So by ensuring that they are the default in Firefox, in Safari, and of course, in Chrome, which is the browser that they themselves run, uh, then they just mean that nobody ever bothers kind of going and, and using any other system. Like Google's argument is, of course, it's relatively easy for someone to opt into other search engines if they choose. It's only uh, like it's 10 this... clicks to change it, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, just you know, here and then there and then, oh, and then it's a hidden sub menu. Uh, look, one of their big points of evidence is actually that when, you know, they see that the... Uh, I believe they've said it that the uh, the most popular search term on the Microsoft Edge browser is Google um, because people are trying to you know find how to replace Bing with Google as their default search engine uh, on the browser where they are not the default. Um, but the really big things here because of course antitrust is all about you know it has to be judged against consumer harm and exactly uh, like sort of Meg was saying before that it's they're really good at what they do. Where is the harm? It's a free service. And that's where this starts to get really nuanced is around that question of going, okay, can the advertising industry itself start to be seen as, you know, an area where there are harms related to, you know, sort of pricing, the fact that they are both, you know, the, the seller and a buyer, like I, there's a whole bunch of definitions sort of in that middle zone there of the fact that they control both ends of the whole advertising ecosystem, but also are things like privacy harms, you know, something that actually can be counted. If if there was a genuine alternative 
to Google, would Google be doing a better job when it comes to how they use people's data? If there were more competitors, where would actually potential benefits be that we've just never seen because of the way that they've made sure that they dominate the market? Google takes a big chunk of of the advertising budget. Is there anyone that can do it better than them? At the moment, no. Has there been an opportunity for others to be competitive? Mm, probably. <laughs> and yet, look, <laughs> I think you hit a pitch then that only dogs can hear. <laughs> I think there's a really, uh, you know, yeah, important part of that there where, again, we always sort of complain about the fact that, you know, the Bing and DuckDuckGo and all these sort of op- alternatives that exist just aren't as good. But there is an element there of thinking, okay, well, let's say that, you know, that there weren't these incentives to, you know, for Firefox and for Safari to to keep Google as the default. Like what if there was a good 10-year runway for another company to have really had the kind of critical mass that they need? You know, and again, critical mass not being 90% of the market, but being one of them getting to like 15 or 20%. And, you know, what would that snowball of data start to do for them to actually improve their ability to deliver search search results people want? It's kind of about, you know, where was that little gap there that would give momentum to anybody else? And it, it, that's, I think, a big part of this is, you know, the fact that behind the scenes, you know, they're really emphasizing the fact that Google has used certain kinds of chat channels and internal channels that, do not get saved to have discussions about these sorts of things because they have never they've wanted to avoid scrutiny for any of their internal discussions and have even had like keyword lists of things <laughs> words we shouldn't use to make sure that they don't kind of get obvious targeted for when it, you know for the way that they might talk about trying to actually dominate the market so they've really been carefully going about this process. I, th- I even wonder, like, if US $20 billion a year wasn't is kind of one of the numbers, but if that wasn't being given to Apple every year, would at some point they have decided maybe we could get into the search engine business? Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And how do you feel about the idea of implants being put into your brain? Well, that is uh, the promise of a biotech company by the name of Neuralink. It's one of Elon Musk's stable of companies. But over the last couple of years, they've been doing tests on animals, particularly primates. And there's been a whole range of allegations as to how those animals have been treated. So letters have been sent to the US Securities and Exchange Commission by uh, a group of medical ethicists to investigate these claims. So Musk had said recently that no animals had died as a result of the trials, but it turns out that may or may not necessarily be true, Seamus. Yeah, so Elon Musk, you wouldn't believe it. He gets in trouble now and then for the things that he posts on his website, formerly known as Twitter. And this is, I think, an important part of the, the letter that they've actually sent to the SEC is that they pointed out that they have in the past you know, said that Musk's tweets are, you know, classified as investor information, right? Because he often the very first time that he'll mention something about one of his companies will be in a in a tweet slash post slash X, whatever you want to call it. Um, so he uh, recently said, you know, no, none of the primates had died, quote, as a result of a Neuralink implant. Because they were already is sick sen- or whatever. It, yeah, oh. and that he even claimed that researchers were only selecting uh, those that were, quote, close to death. 
This has been disputed by like ex-workers at Neuralink, at researchers at the at the place uh, involved, and basically saying like, yeah, they have to go through like a year of training to to be able to, you know, before the, an implant is ever you know, put into their brains. Therefore, they're actually, you know, healthy and relatively young. Uh, it would never be part of choosing them uh, as a process. Uh, but yeah, specifically that there are a number of the the test subjects, and I'm not going to go into the details because it's really quite ho- horrific. It is really clearly linked to the implants that have been put into their brains and, you know, in at least three, four, five occasions, really, really clearly involved with the implants that were put into their brains, leading to uh, the reasons why they died. Is there a way to do these sorts of tests, biological tests, without bringing animals into the process, I suppose, is really the question. Thanks for getting me into trouble with everyone, Mark. What am I here for? Um, Look, probably not. Look, I think that where we are, we probably do need to have some animal trials for for some of these things. And I think that if they can be done in a humane way, I I don't have a problem with it. But when I read the article that I read, it's absolutely horrific and I'm not okay with it. At some point, human trials will start. But would you feel comfortable with human trials starting if they hadn't been an animal component? And this is is the thorny territory of of these kinds of testing, this kind of testing. Yeah, and I feel like transparency really has to be key to these things, right? It shouldn't be happening in a way where people are just trying to dismiss or, or promise that, you know, no animals died because of the implants when actually, you know, a lot of the data suggests that that was probably the case. I think, you know, with anything where we're involving these kinds of animal trials and then even into human trials, you know, everyone involved should be as publicly aware as possible. And that's kind of a key thing here is the reason that the letter was sent in the first place was saying that he is trying to, you know, gloss over this so that he can continue to convince people to fund the company and keep its projects going, that no one should be putting money into this and certainly no one should be putting their hand up for human trials if they're not aware of the kinds of issues that have actually been tied to the testing so far. I guess the other side of the equation here is what is the promise of Neuralink? Should it become successful? Should it work? Should it not damage any living creatures, human or otherwise? What is the hope of what it will become, Seamus? So the Elon Musk version, uh, being the apocalyptic sort of brain that he is, uh, he talks about that it would be the ultimate extension of the human mind into the internet consciousness so that we can explore the universe in an amazing new uh, way. I mean, the the slightly less uh, you know, fanciful version is it could certainly potentially give uh, like movement back to people who have lost you know, limb movement um, by through thought alone. And that's, I guess, the key thing is trying to create a system that directly interfaces with the brain so that you can then you know, think things and have them executed, you know, whether it's just part of your own body and having systems sort of you know, put in place to do that or being able to, say, like move a cursor on a screen. And these are sort of technologies we can do now through like eye movement and things, but it's about creating that first true uh, brain interface to be able to then you know, manipulate the world around you in useful ways. Meg, if it can live up to its promise and if it can be done in an ethical way, do you, do you see that this is the sort of thing that at some point would become a consumer product or is it, is it more something that's meant for, for industry and other purposes? 
Oh no! Oh my gosh! I think I think this is could be the way forward, right? If, if we're talking about giving movement back to those who are paralyzed, or the ability, you know, I think what this could do for humans, it's it's the next sort of frontier of science, right? I don't think I want Elon Musk doing it for me, <laughs> um, but I do think that this idea and this way that we're going is is phenomenal. And if we can find a way, and we will find a way, the science is 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 progressing us that um, in that direction. I, I'm all for it. We just need to be ethical about how we do it. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to Meg Coffey, social media strategist extraordinaire. <laughs> Thanks for coming <laughs> back on Download the Show. And Dag, like all my curly questions I gave you, I'm so sorry. I gave you hard ones today. Always, always a pleasure to be back with you and welcome back. Thank you. And Seamus Byrne, an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you for the tackling the curly questions too. <laughs> Great to be here. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another episode of Download the Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.